Falsha, 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 a hard and welcome to episode 93 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm your host, Anna O'Carlan. Today's guest on the show is Tom Fowler, and the subject of today's episode is the Spy Cops scandal. Last November, seen the beginning of the long awaited public inquiry into undercover policing operations in England. Tom discusses the background of this type of undercover policing operation that has been in force for over 40 years in England and he also touches on how he became very personally entangled in the whole spy cop situation. But to give you a bit of background information on what we're going to be talking about, there was a particular division of the police in England called the Special Demonstration Squad, which was initially created to infiltrate uh protest groups around the time of the Vietnam War and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit also employed this tactic of putting policemen undercover and policewomen undercover into mostly small left-wing groups and as the scale of this whole spy cops operation is coming to light now there was at least 139 cops that were given fake identities to closely monitor the inner the inner workings of over 1000 political groups you'll hear tom talking about the types of groups that were infiltrated and also the callousness of the practices that were employed by the individual cops that had infiltrated the groups some of the most striking things that stick out for me are the cops that got into personal romantic relationships with women and some of these groups and were together for years and even got engaged to them and in some cases the two people had had children together and then all of a sudden the cops were disappearing and falling off the radar because their assignment which might have lasted years had come to an end and they just went back to whatever it was they were doing beforehand or back to their families and left women and children abandoned as part of this operation it's also come to light that some of the cops that infiltrated these small groups assumed the identities of dead children to make their stories more credible one thing that i feel is very important to point out before we get stuck into the chat with tom is that the spy cops weren't infiltrating groups that were involved in criminality or in violent behaviors they were infiltrating small groups of civilians who were organizing completely within the law and even infiltrated Stephen Lawrence's family, Stephen who was murdered in a racially motivated attack in London in 1993. The spy cops embedded themselves into his family so that they could influence the direction that they were taking in terms of the demonstrations that were happening after Stephen's murder. From our perspective, it does seem like the whole spy cop scandal hasn't been getting the public attention that it really deserves. So it was great to have Tom on the podcast. And I also will say that the more that we were researching this whole spy cop scandal, the more was coming to light. It's a fairly deep rabbit hole. So I really would recommend going and doing a wee Google search on spy cops, reading some of the articles and checking out some of the resources that the victims of the scandal have put together and made available. Tom has been tweeting on a regular basis 
on Spy Cop related news and you can follow him on Twitter at Tom B. Fowler and you can also go to spycops.co.uk for some further resources and information. If there's anything positive to take from this whole situation, I think as Tom mentions in the chat, it's that the scale of the abuse and manipulation that the cops inflicted on the members of these small groups is now starting to come to light and I'm glad that Tom has had the opportunity to come on and talk about it on the Rebel Matters podcast and this feels like a good place to thank everyone who is making these episodes possible. The Rebel Matters podcast is completely supported and funded by our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash rebel matters we've got five tiers of support over on our patreon page and you can go and check them out if you're thinking about becoming a patron of the show the support that we've been getting over the last few months really has helped us to bring the podcast on to a whole new level and make plans for future episodes so thanks very much to everyone who has been supporting the podcast and the encouragement messages and shares on social media have also been a great boost to us and last but not least before we get stuck into the chat with tom i just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who listened to episode 92 of the podcast which was a special edition on international women's day with bernadette mccallisky and deirdre mccallisky it was great for me to be a part of that conversation and Vicky and myself are very grateful to Bernadette and Deirdre for coming on to the show and we're delighted with the response that we got to that episode. So if you haven't already heard that one, I would really recommend going back and giving it a listen whenever you get the chance. Anyway, that's enough from me for now. So let's get stuck into this episode about the Spy Cop scandal with Tom Fowler. Thanks a million for coming on the show, first of all, Tom. Hey, no worries, man. So we're going to be talking about the Spy Cops uh, scandal and the inquiry that's after starting. And the first thing I ha- had in mind to ask you is, like, what are the basic things about the, the whole Spy Cop situation that someone should know about or a good starting point for someone who's just hearing about it for the first time? So I, I guess, like, when we talk about spy cops, we're talking really about like two units of the British police, uh, the Special Demonstration Squad and the Nas- National Public Order Intelligence Unit. But like they're not MI5 or like, um, you know, like a particularly um, special unit, they're just part of special branch. They're infiltrating protest groups. So these are the cops that are going after people. Uh, for being involved in public order. It was set up in 68 uh, as a response to the uh, really large anti-Vietnam War demonstration in London. Um, and these cops went out, um, they took the identity of dead children, um, 
and infiltrated themselves into people's lives, generally through a relationship, which they would uh, they would target someone within a political group who was um, vulnerable in some way to, to develop a relationship with them, and would usually deceive um, a woman to like a, a, a three, four-year relationship, um, sexual relationship within the group before uh, stringing up a scenario to disappear. Um, in some cases, these relationships led to the birth of children, um, which they then abandoned once their their, deploy, their five-year deployment and the cover into protest groups. Would it be right to say that the vast majority of groups that were infiltrated by these undercover cops were kind of left-wing groups? Yeah, almost exclusively. Um, there are... The, there, there's a few individual examples of. I mean, we don't know who all the under, all, who all of them were yet, um, and I, I'm really bad at remembering exact numbers. But it's like 142 field agents, I think it is. But um, since '68, but the vast, vast majority are in uh, left-leaning groups, anarchist groups, environmental direct action, animal rights, um, road protests, uh, uh, trade unions, um, women's rights. Um, vegan groups, I mean, all sorts of, I mean, some ridiculously um, innocuous sounding groups. Um, but yeah, majority on the left. There were individual officers infiltrated into like uh, far-right groups, one or two, but um, not in the, in the less of a culture of it as it appears to be. Whenever um, Vicky and myself were doing the research um, before getting on to the chat with you here, like it's kind of a, a deep enough rabbit hole of organizations that they infiltrated. Once you see like, okay, these are the groups and you start looking at them, like they're not, it's not as if there were mass movements of people who were going out and organizing like violent direct action or anything like that. There like, like a lot of the groups were just small groups of uh, kind of left-wing activists or mostly peaceful as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if, if they had been like going organizing like big violent direct action, they wouldn't have let it wouldn't be these cops who were dealing with them. These cops were set up to target small groups of activists who were going out into the street with a placard. Um direct action, um, as far as they were was like it's, you know, it was about public order. That was their thing. Public order. It was I mean one uh, Conrad Dixon, um, who was the officer who set the unit up, um like once referred to um, protecting the Queen's peace as the highest calling of a police officer. You know, there was something about that, really, something that cultural, I guess, about, like, it's the, it's the late, it's the mid-69, um, there's all these long-haired layabout types, um, you know, like, smoking dope and, like, and waving back, like, Vietnamese flags and, like, demanding, you know, like, not supporting the troops and being, you know, a mess. And, like, the cops wanted to wipe them out. Um, like the actual sort of like formation, the reason why the group got like the the unit got the funding it did, the secrecy it did, got the oversight that it didn't have, you know, the, the ability to operate it did, was because the police really did lose control of that first protest in um, uh, uh, Grosvenor Square in uh, mid uh, '68, uh, '69. Um, it's you know, it, it is the, like the it was it was very much like kind of a, a a bad day at the office for the cops, and you know afterwards, um, Conrad Dixon turns to Home Secretary says, "Give me half a million pounds, ten good men, and a free hand, and this will never happen again." And you know they decided that that was that was worth it, and then you know from then on, 
you've got like a, a six months, well, three months, I think it is. Uh, there's the, the first um, protest at Grover Square against the Vietnam War, which you know nearly goes inside the US cap, um, US embassy, nearly breaches the embassy. Um, there's three or four hours of like pitch fighting with cops getting their helmets knocked off their heads, pulled off horses, and so forth. Um, you know, later on that year, there's the second one, which you know there's been huge, huge like, every like uh, left wing international solidarity group in the UK has been building for it's much bigger. But they decided to do a shoulder strike by walking around to Hyde Park. Um, there were meetings where they decided to do that rather than go back to the embassy. Um, in some of those meetings, there's votes which way to go, and it's very close. There was up to all ten of the undercover officers that the special demonstration squad had sent in undercover at these meetings, which you know may have swayed it to be the case that they decided to do a much less confrontational second march. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the units kind of like uh, after that success kind of goes from there and reaches out to like to. to to get involved in anything, anything really, anything, anything that does public order, anything where they meet in public on the street. I think that's a good point that you made there about the fact that the the kind of variety of the groups and the nature of the groups that have been that were being infiltrated. It's not like getting started on the discussion here. It's important to point out that this wasn't a special unit of police that was going into like drug dealing gangs or criminal gangs to try and break them up. It was going into groups of civilians who were just organizing themselves for peaceful means? Yeah, so this, it, was, it was special branch officers. So before they became undercover officers, they'd been researching these, these political groups, keeping an eye on sedition. Um, the, 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 this isn't, they are not the same cops on any stretch. Never have been. Um, it's been quite interesting sort of hearing from former un- undercover like uh, drug cops, people like Neil Woods, um, Who's the like chair of law enforcement against prohibition these days? Um, wrote that was one of these ex cops who's like, undercover cop guys, and I mean he's incredibly critical of the spy cops. Um, they seem completely different, kind of totally different training, uh, totally different sort of system entirely. Um, but yeah, initially the, the the people they recruited to be those undercovers, they the reason they got the job was their knowledge of seditious, seditious groups, not because of undercover work. You know, these are political police by definition. You're one of the main points of information for a lot of people in terms of relaying what's been happening in the public inquiry because you're tweeting out from uh, like from the hearings or whatever. How come that yeah. you've, you've come to be that person? So, I mean, I was part of a group called South Wales Anarchists. Um, I guess I am. I never get to leave, really. Um, and like, we, like, uh, for a long time, we did a lot of direct action. Uh uh, particularly uh, early two thousand, in the two thousands, the noughties, um, uh, and our group was uh, infiltrated by uh, someone we late found out to be an undercover police officer, Marco Jacobs. Um, while he was de- deployed undercover, he had a number of sexual relationships. Um, that led uh, after we, we were quite lucky um, when uh, first Mark Kennedy was outed, who was a um, an undercover officer who was infiltrating environmental direct action groups based out of Nottingham, um, who someone also knew, thought of as a friend. Um, he, uh, his unmasking um, kind of led to a series of events, really, where 
people who'd recently disappeared, who people had had some concerns about. So there was another um, undercover officer, Lynn Watson, up in Leeds. And for us in, in South Wales with Marco, um, we through fairly quickly uh, managed to confirm that they had been an undercover officer. He disappeared maybe uh, like a year previously, a bit less than that. But um, so we, we were able to, whereas a lot of the other people who found out about undercover officers infiltrating their lives, spent 10 years with everybody thinking they were mad. Um, kind of, they're going, I think this person was undercover cop, they disappeared, I can't find any detail of them, I'm trying to track them down. Um, we were quite, we were quite lucky. It was, you know, quite quickly after they disappeared. We, so we had concerns. But were you saying that Marco had gone away a year and then just yeah. retrospectively figured out that he had yeah, up? Yeah, but, yeah, because um, it was only Mark Kennedy who was outed whilst he was still deployed. So actually, I was just reading a fairly lengthy uh, article in the the Guardian website about that, and um, where he was mm-hmm. kind of like his partner found his passport or something like that and that's kind of how that yeah, came about and yeah, then yeah. um actually watched the short youtube video of um what was the woman you mentioned her lynn um oh lynn watson yeah yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Was, she was part of the circuit yeah uh, yeah so uh, you know what was really striking about that video is like she was pretending to be a clown kind of for me like that kind of struck as uh, i guess a uh, bit of a chord or like kind of opened the, the door a little bit to how personal the infiltrations Mm. were like you know when you see that the the group of clients that are kind of working together and they're then they went down to the local mp's office to kind of try and occupy it or something like that there so that's that's what happened to you then you just kind of like marco disappeared and then you were able to put the pieces together again yeah yeah so at the same time as a bunch of other people um so we ended up there ended up being a number of us in south wales bringing a legal action um two of the women who had sex relationships with him and myself brought a case um, which went on for like seven years. At the same time, a number of other women who'd been deceived into long-term intimate sex relationships with undercover officers also brought cases. And we were going back and forth to the high court until the police settled out of court, paid us all off. To, you know, I mean, the problem with bringing civil cases, you don't, you know, you're unlikely to get your day in court. If you are likely to win, you just get paid out. Was that after, it was 2011, was it, when you found out? Or... Uh, yeah, 2010, 2011, yeah, yeah. So like that yeah. must have been just up until two two years ago then that was going on, that case, for seven years? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, two, three years ago, yeah, yeah. And you see, like, yeah. in broad terms, I know there's an inquiry that's just after starting in October last year now, mm-hmm. that's a public inquiry, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about. But broadly speaking, uh, from what we already know about the, the various cases that have come to light, like, what are the main sort of after effects or impact of this type of infiltration like that I've had on the people? I mean, like, so, I mean, like, if you want, like, an insight into, like, uh, how women who've been, like, because uh, like, I mean, the thing I remember about these cops, like, they've got a lot of, like, background knowledge of you when they go into a situation. And, like, they've also got other sources of information about what you're doing with your life at the time when they're interacting with you. So they've kind of got it, like, the... Like they can be magic, right? As a partner, they can be absolute fucking magic. And they, they can like all the things you like and make sure they don't forget anything important, you know? So they were very, very um, loving partners, or uh, well, they appear to be. Um, so like they're, 
the initial thing for a lot of the um, people who were infiltrated was just that kind of like uh, when they dis- disappear, always very traumatic. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there's huge problems that led them to disappear. So there's a huge, there's a heightened trauma just from the, the when, when they leave, and then like the understanding that actually they've been someone. This wasn't the, this person who seemed to be perfect. You know that you kind of judge everybody against as a part is now not real. Is like. Yeah, it's devastating, man. I mean, there's um, there's a really good podcast series, Bed of Lies, that uh, tells the story of, of like discovering uh, from the point of view of uh, some of the women who uh, were, were were deceived uh, by undercover cops, uh, which I really recommend to anybody. Um, I mean, a lot of these the, the women is uh, my you know my good friends and and, and comrades in, in all this, and like you know, they're I. I'm not like saying anything. They are incredibly damaged by the experience, um, and it's had a, it's a remarkably significant impact on their lives um, and what their lives look like now, and have always going to look like, I guess, because of when these things happened uh, in their lives, because of the knock-on effect, of lack of trust. You know, some of these people don't have families that maybe they would have liked to have had. You know, so. it sounds like a a devious and stretched out form of like kind of catfishing and gaslighting just to the extreme yeah 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 absolutely absolutely yeah um i I think like um there's something there's something slightly sadistic about it as well because it's like so we don't don't really know how it started to be that um the, the spy cops like used relationships as their primary method of legend, you know, their primary method of infiltration. But it, it appears that that, it, that becomes, you know, the, 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 the central part of the playbook. Um, we, 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 every time we thought, ah, oh, it's because of um, what Bob Lambert did, that, that he's then written handbooks, and then they've all started doing that. But then we found it was happening much earlier. So, you know. And but Bob Lambert then was in a... A relationship that ended up having a child with uh, with his partner, yeah, and then yeah. disappeared. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, he then, he then disappeared. Yeah, he um, he had a child um, with an animal rights activist with Hans Abattoir, um and then left. Yeah, I mean, the, the child grew up thinking his dad was like uh, an animal rights activist who'd been on the, was on the run for law, you know, uh, until the, the truth of it came through, which is kind of. Yeah, you know, he's he's a cop to in the inquiry as well. We have the same lawyer. Um. And is there any information now um, that has come to light over the last number of years about like why they were doing this? Because like when I was looking into it and and reading about it and being kind of quite new to learning about it and stuff like that, I just was kind of struggling to get my head around why they would put so so many resources and so many people Mm -hmm. at risk for what seemed to be like they couldn't have been getting much back in return really i mean i think like it's one of those things like it's, it's a valid question but it's like why i do wonder why that question wasn't asked before we knew about the undercover crowd. because look at the overt policing um of any large government event right i mean like we had um a couple of years ago i'm in newport in south wales and we had the nato summit here about six years ago and like the public order policing for that was, you know, tens of millions, tens of millions for a weekend of like Obama and all those. 
you know, all these characters turning up in Newport and going to the posh hotel. You know, the, the, when we look at like policing of protest and like it's the, the very overt stuff, never mind any of the, the, the covert stuff, because I mean, like Spy Cop is only part of the covert stuff anyway, as well. I mean, there's a whole, we know all about the like the electronic stuff, the Snowden kind of revelation to give us an idea of what that's like. Um, once you see it in that context, and the amount of money that's being spent, the number of man hours, and all the things that go into that, when you look at the cost of running the likes of the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, it's quite cheap. Uh, it's not a huge amount of, of uh, officers. Um, the intelligence is second to none. Um, in the context of this hugely over, like we, we in in the UK, we have a, a very very highly developed anti-political uh, dissent policy within the policing. Um, it's been incredibly effective. I mean, since the late 60s, there are very few organizations that have managed to stay operational, like, um, you know, because I think there's something about the, the, the these officers aren't, aren't just going in to, like, gather intelligence. I mean, like, they, they're not operating like a normal undercover cop who's like, working towards prosecution. A lot of their work is about disruption and, and, and destabilizing movements, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's part of a long game. It's not. Uh, it, it's not like aha, we have stopped that particular thing happening. It's about the criminalisation of dissent, right? You know, which is a, has got a long-term political goal for the British state. That um, what you just said there might sound familiar to people who were following along with the Black Lives Matter movement in America. Right, whenever yeah. it really came to light that there was people had infiltrated those groups to direct the protests to be more violent, so that then have kind of justified a more aggressive response from the police that were there. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm always wary of that because I don't think police never really need extra justification. You know, I mean, like, I'm sure for provocateur activity happened. It definitely happened. We, we know examples of it. But as often, the police are doing the opposite. Because do you know what? Like in, in a lot of those situations, like in America with the Black Lives Matter stuff, people have every fucking right to be incredibly violent about some of these things that were happening, right? And like they didn't need any encouragement from under cover cop to like, oh, actually, fuck this, we're gonna fight back properly. Um, it, it's, it's kind of, I always think it's kind of a convenient sort of liberal thing to go like, ah, oh, well, the Austrian provocateurs pushed them to beat, you know, like. I mean, my personal experience of undercover policing was not Austrian provocateur, quite the opposite, quite like a de-escalization of. of not not like you know violence, but like kind of oh well, we could do that thing. Yeah, it's a good campaign idea, but let's have another round now, like the night before, you know, and like you know, so many like those kind of things rather than It really sounds like there's a very um, large element of kind of um, psychological abuse involved with with this kind of infiltration. I was watching an interview that Mark Kennedy gave on Channel Four earlier on, and he had been with his partner for six years before it mm. came to light that he had been a, a cop. Mm. And I was sitting thinking, like, when I was watching the interview, I was thinking, like, did his ex-partner watch that and think, like, was there any shred of realness in that relationship? Or was it all just, like, being a cop, reporting back and being on duty? And he said something uh, that John Snow asked him a question and then he specifically said, I was on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I suppose that kind of, for me, kind of sums up the, the, the callousness of this type of infiltration 
and how it's kind of like it's so meshed with like human emotion and kind of psychological manipulation and stuff like that. Um, yeah, man, you'd fucking you'd go nuts, wouldn't you? Like six years of your life, man, six years, and it's like, and I, you know, like I can't think of anybody I've been out with for like six years who I didn't feel that I fucking knew their soul a bit. Like, you know, what I mean? would you give someone that long? You kind of like you kind of know them, you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, and then you'd stuff you don't know shit about them. Like, you never trust your gut instincts ever again. Like, you know, Whenever I was watching that interview, I was like, when John Snow asked that question, I was thinking in my head, right, he's going to say here, no, like, I did have feelings for the person I was with, and it did make, fr-. but and then he was like, no, no, I was on duty for 24 hours a day. And I was like, whoa, it's insane. And now, like, there's, so there's the inquiry that's after starting up in mm-hmm. October 2020, I think, that it, it, it initially kind of kicked finally off. Finally started, yeah, yeah, finally, yeah, about the end of October, yeah, yeah. So what's the, yeah, what's mean, the like, aspiration for that, like? aspiration <laughs> I mean like you know I remember like before when the inquiry was first called which is like going back to like 2014 now, um, we had a fellow from the Pat Finnegan Centre come up we had a like a, a crime and justice studies crowd did like some conference and a fellow from the Pat Finnegan Centre came over and he was like oh you've got this inquiry you know the best thing that can come out of this inquiry is to get another inquiry and the best thing that can come out of that inquiry is another inquiry and the best thing I like and like you know, so you might get something which gets somewhere which start something, but like so, don't you know aspirationally don't expect much. Is that you know? so? Are you? I think you, right. Are you talking about the Pat Finucan Center in? Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, and well, I suppose like in Ireland now we we have now a long-standing history with uh, kind of demanding inquiries from like Bloody Sunday to Ballymurphy massacre um, to the yeah. killing of Pat Finucan and Rosemary Nelson. It's after getting. It's after kicking off now. Like so, like is. Tell us a little bit about it, because whenever I was doing the research on on the inquiry side of things, like it really seems like which is something that I'm not surprised uh, by having kind of um, been following uh, various groups of relatives who were calling for public inquiries because of things that happened uh, in Ireland for so long. But it really seems like the whoever is in charge of running that inquiry, whether it's the government or the police or whatever, seem to be quite uh, content with making it pretty difficult for it to be a transparent inquiry where people can get the information that's coming out of the inquiry freely. Yeah, I mean, I think like, um, so I think partially the problem is that, so the original chair was uh, Sir Christopher Pitchford. Um, he died and got replaced by Sir John Mitting. I mean, both of these are established. I mean, they're, they're like our judges. I mean, they're incredibly establishing people. But I think certainly the second chair, the current chair, is um, would not have been somebody you, you'd want in charge of something like this. I mean, like, I think like it's worth saying that like, unlike all the other inquiries you listed there, uh, this isn't about a single event. It's about a period of time that starts in. Uh, 1968 to 69 rather 1969 and then kind of it was meant to come to an end when like around when the inquiry was called but we've already know of activity that the undercover cops are doing after the inquiry was called in 2014 um, I mean like, 2015 yeah there were things happening with the, the, our record already so you know it's a, it, it's very open-ended um the the approach to it is very much centered around uh, gaining evidence from individual officers 
the deployed the surviving deployed officers that after I mean the, you know in the last six years of waiting for the inquiry to happen, the police have done everything to get as much anonymity um, you know, for their officers to keep as many of them out off the witness stand. Um, and the judge has been the chair has been very understanding with any sort of you know oh I I don't want to give evidence because it would embarrass me amongst people I currently know now, uh, people who knew, knew what I used to do. So literally their anonymity is based on public embarrassment. The public inquiry, right, in, in broad terms, a public inquiry is supposed to be, like, say, to sh- shed more light on something that has happened. And the police have, say, admitted that this was a thing. I was watching a video of... Uh, a representative of one of the police forces or whatever given a, a public apology and so by yeah, then by yeah, they're kind of they're kind of saying okay this did happen and we're sorry that it happened and then the public inquiry yeah. the purpose of it is supposed to be to um to bring more things to light and give some sort of uh some process of kind of redress or closure for for yeah. victims of the system is that is, is would that be fair to say is that what a public inquiry is supposed to be so yeah kind of so it's it's got stated aims, um, but they're not necessarily about public understand like increasing the public understanding and knowledge of the secret state. Unsurprisingly, um, it's very much about how did it come to be that um, what seemed to be the majority of members of this polit- of this political political uh, policing unit um, were. Dis- Deceiving um, perfectly uh, legal campaigners into intimate sex relationships. Right. So, like, there's something. Like the, the initial narrative from the police was, "Oh, it's a, it's a rogue officer. Oh, it's a rogue unit," and that doesn't stand up. But we're not getting. So, for example, one of the things that the chair has decided um, that he's not just the other day we had a directions hearing. He decided that. The inquiry would not be looking into the registry files. These are the files that um, special branch formulate on people. That's the, the one that everybody, like, kind of the special branch builds on people. So he would, the inquiry won't be looking at those because the intelligence for those files come from all over the place. It's not just from undercover cops. That could be from your phone being tapped. It could be from the fact that you're, you're married to an informer. It could be all sorts of things. The fact that what we look, what this inquiry is about is the actions of the Special Demonstration Squad, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. Um, so it, it's it, it's something that's happening in a dark room, but they want they don't want the, the torch to go like too far to the left or too far to the right. There's a very narrow line of things they want to look at. Uh, it's very notable when they interview former undercover cops um, after they've kind of like gone through you know the, the initial things. That it's like. Did you have any relationships while you were undercover? Was your identity um, formulated from that of a dead child? You, there's certain individual activities which have been deemed in the court of public opinion because they haven't they haven't happened anywhere else unacceptable, right? Um, there's something unacceptable about because like it's not just stealing the name of a dead child; it's the full identity. You, know, you kind of go and stalk the parents to the dead child see where they would have gone to school, the area, you know, what the parents do for a living to add to your legend. That's you. That's who you become. Um, and like that, there's something distasteful about that, right? We we don't like it. People don't like it. But I mean, as it stands, they haven't broken any laws. Nobody's been charged with breaking any laws, right? So it's something distasteful, which 
like people want like something somebody to held account for, but like, how can it stop it from happening again? How will lessons be learned? That's what the inquiry is there to do, really, not to increase public understanding. Where does the element of closure and a kind of apology for victims come in come into play? There is that is that a factor in the in the inquiry as well? No, I mean, like essentially, like the the the, the um. The apology exists because uh, a small group of very determined act, female activists um, took the Metropolitan Police to court um, for seven years, and well, I think six years they got before that happened, and got an apology as part of a settlement. Um, the police did that under duress. Like all things, you get what you fight for, right? You don't get it otherwise. Um, the, the, there's never been like a as much as they've, there's been an admission of wrongdoing, um, there's been no sense of guilt from the police. There's been there's been no suggestion that they um, they feel, oh gosh, you know, all these terrible things happened. Let's let's get to the heart of it. Let's get to the truth of it and find out there's, that that doesn't exist. It doesn't seem like there's been um, a realization that there needs to be some sort of standard or like uh, you know, like code of conduct for like okay, from now on no getting into relationships whenever you're undercover or from now on, no going undercover in the peaceful like groups of civilians? Quite the opposite. I mean, I think like you know, we've already had like, um, you know, former former senior police officers, you know, going on the media saying that like, the likes of XR are terrorists, right? You know, like, um, I, I the, the Spy Cops bill um, was just passed just yesterday, man. It's really depressing. <laughs> I mean, basically, all this stuff's perfectly legal now. There's a legal footing for it. Um, quite the opposite. I mean, like, I think we, there was a window of opportunity, like, when the inquiry was called, where there was a public disgust. But I think we've got to a point now where, you know, certainly the leadership of the major political parties all believe that this kind of... Because, I mean, let's not forget, it was set up under a Labour government in the police units. Um, and the current Labour leadership is quite, ha- it's quite comfortable with this sort of tactics. It's dead so, you know, that we need to put these things on a legal footing. So um, does the Spy Cops bill then make it more legal to be doing that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, because, it, because it, it gives a legal... So uh, uh, up until now, everything was based under RIPA, the Regulatory Investigative Powers Act, um, which gave covert human intelligence sources certain levels of authorization. But it doesn't mean break the law. Whereas this legislation now specifically says, yeah, as long as you get an authorization, which can be fairly low. Like one thing that struck me is, it's like it's not making like mainstream headline news the way that I, I thought. I thought, okay, I'm going to put spy cops into Google here, and it's also going to come up. But then I'm reading articles mm. from five, six years ago that are on the first page, and the more kind of read about the the nature of the inquiry, I was thinking like, is it because of the way the inquiry is being conducted? Is that why? the media hasn't been picking it up as much or is there something else? And I, I guess I wanted to ask you about that as well, because you've been in the, in the inquiry and you've been tweeting out um, pieces of information as you were getting them, but uh, what ways the, the inquiry been, been carried out? So, I mean, I think like there's, there's definitely, a, there's, there's a deficit of news coverage, right? There's a huge like problem generally, I would say like, um, in like coverage of anything to do with uh, policing, um, uh, there's a very small number of journalists who cover this sort of stuff. 
Um, specifically when it comes to the cover of policing, um, Rob Evans at The Guardian, who wrote the book Undercover with Paul Lewis, you know, back when this sort of, we broke the story in the first place, um, has been fantastic. He's been following the story all the way through, and that's great. There, there isn't anybody else who's been doing the same thing at any other media institution. I mean, like Channel 4 News, Simon Israel, was mostly retired now, has been following the story through. Um, there's there's a guy at the BBC, uh, Dominic Cancini. There's a, there's a few other journalists who follow. But for the most part, it's just there's, there's just not the resources put on what is a fairly complex story that's quite a long thread. I mean, like, um, if you haven't been following the story for a while, it's quite shocking to catch up with. Um, but like, I, mean, I think, like, we've got such a burnout now, right, of, like, kind of horrific things, <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, the cops kind of were doing this stuff. It's like, well, of course they were. I'm, do you know what I mean? It's like, well, I mean, like, there's so many horrific things that happen in... In British society, um, oh, hang on. Um, like this doesn't really, this doesn't figure as that big. A, I mean, like it's awful. Everybody knows it's awful, but like there's a media sort of burnout of like kind of interest. In it. There's only so many times you can say that they stole their children's identities, deceived women in long-term relationships, had children with them, disappeared. I mean, it's, it's the same story again and again. You get a new version of it, you know, and they. Turns out they're now a Tory councillor. They're now a police and crime commissioner. They're now, you know, they've gone on to all the. They're now like a a, 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 a tenured professor at the university. What what they've gone on to do? What the spy cops did next? You know, speaks volumes about who these people are. What's it been like for you having this kind of constant thing in your life there for like for the last uh, like eleven years or so or something like that? It's been fucking crazy, man. I mean, like, so when I used to be, uh, like, as an activist, as a, as a younger man, um, like, really involved in all sorts of shit, man. Do you know what I mean? It was like kind of, you know, the sort, man. It was like kind of a bit of a lifestyle. I got involved in, like, road protests, um, hand stabbing, anti-fascist organising, all around the same time. And it kind of it became my social life as well as my, you know, it was kind of much more interested in my job. I'm a printer by day. Like, it was kind of, instead of a career, kind of doing politics. You know, it's like... Um, and there's all these different things. And then, like, when this happened, I ended up being, like, unintentionally, like, I campaigned around undercover policing now. I was, I was never, like, I did you know, I didn't pick that page on purpose and be, like, pull out of the book and go, right, that's what I'm fucking, you know. But for the last 10 years, that's what, that's the majority of the political activism I do. Do you get burnt out from it? Or do you some days just wake up and be like, I wish this would just fucking go away now, like, let me get on with something else in my life? Or is it kind of, are you kind of on the path to try and come to some form of, like, some level where you're like, okay, that's that job. At least we we did everything that we could there. Yeah, so I mean, I think like uh, I think something else. I think like I, I, don't, I definitely don't think that last idea that like there's kind of a point where you get to and then go, oh, there we go, achieved something, done. Um, I think it's more like um, you've just got. I mean, like it's just tough. Like and that's what you've got. You know, there there is an injustice. Like you are ideally placed to try and do something about it. You may fail miserably, but nobody else appears to be doing it so you better get on with it i kind of think for you like that really i mean like um I, I think for me personally like there is an element of like if i had if i wasn't doing this uh i would be more conflicted about the experience i feel i should be doing something um i've got a lot of friends who had you know were very traumatized by the experience of being infiltrated who haven't campaigned about it over the last 10 years. Uh, and they are definitely having a hard, they have a harder time processing when new information comes out than I do. Uh, I think they have, they're more, 
it's, 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 it's still more raw. I, I, it doesn't feel particularly raw to me anymore, to be honest, because I'm so used to it. And I think that uh, probably helps. It's kind of like a, a small kind of pressure release valve when right, you get right, the information yeah, exactly. and be able yeah, to put it out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, also, I mean, like the other thing is, is that so many of the other people have been working on that. Um, there's groups like Police Spies Out of Lives, Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance, Undercover Research Group, Blacklist um, Support Group, who are just like fantastic activists who are really inspiring, have, had, like, have been dealt some of the shittiest ends of the stick by the state and are continuing to, you know, headbang that brick wall and, and refuse to back down, and which is incredibly inspiring and gives you great enthusiasm to keep cracking on. The, just to go back to, to the inquiry there, and I read it, there, there seems to be obviously issues like with every element of life at the minute uh, around people being able to go in and see the, go to the hearings and be present at the hearings or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I kind of got the sense that maybe that there, there was a, a, another element to it as well. And then like, what's, what's the situation for people who want to get the, get the information? Because is, it would it be right to say that the stuff that comes out of the public inquiry should be publicly available for anyone? Is that the way it works? Right. So like, so you've seen the situation with where, um, you know, COVID comes along, they go, okay, well, we're going to go virtual. And instead of people having to come in person to witness the inquiry, they can just log on to Zoom and follow it like that. Great. The problem with the undercover policing inquiry isn't so much that the COVID made it all so difficult to do. It's that the obvious, simple and straightforward response to the, um, the pandemic, which would be to live stream proceedings properly, the inquiry team are refusing to do. Um, what I believe to be very spurious grounds, like I said, the, a lot of the undercover police, former undercover police, have got anonymity based upon embarrassment, um, based upon a belief that if they don't have anonymity, which means that they, they wouldn't be broadcast either their, their voice or their, their uh, face. So we had this ridiculous situation during the first phase of the inquiry where um, the, as soon as we got to any evidence hearings, um, the Zoom would shut down and you would have a 10-minute delay of um, text um, of the transcript of the, of the, of the evidence being given. So um, is that for, say, people who are there to be present or in a different room somewhere and instead of right, seeing, so, seeing it, the testimony, they're getting it on text, for, text form? Yeah. Normally, when the public inquiry is taking place, anybody can go along, sit in the public gallery, see the witnesses come and give evidence, right? I mean, there's not a history of videoing that and then keeping it on file or anything, so that would be unusual. Because of COVID, well, video it broadcasted. That's what most inquiries have been doing. This inquiry won't do that. So you have to, to get around it, to make it open to the public. They had a viewing room, so we were able to go down to... Um, a, uh, a very posh hotel by uh, centre of, of London in the middle of the lockdown. Um, ridiculous situation. I travelled down from South Wales to go and sit in a posh hotel and watch a video feed of the undercover couples in another place again, uh, giving evidence, which the only way I could actually see him is by doing that. Otherwise, all I would get is this text feed. Which, I'm not being funny, because of the nature of these things, you, you lose a great deal from just getting the text feed. Um, just the, the inflection, the way people respond to things, the way they talk, everything. You know, it, it's, it makes a huge difference, I think, to actually be able to see, even over video. I mean, in person, we're much better. Like that you can yeah. sense the emotion behind the, what the person is saying? 
Right, yeah, yeah. And whether they take whether they're taking the entire process seriously or not. And whether you believe them, you know. Do do you feel like there's an element of um that thing that you mentioned earlier about not wanting to shine the torch too far left or too far right and kind of like just to um is kind of like is there an element of censorship there in a way? A hundred percent. I mean like they're very open about it. You know, the reason the 10-minute delay happens is is that so, for example, while I'm sat there following things, live tweeting what's being said, I have to wait 10 minutes before I press send on anything I've written. Um, which is, like, I haven't got any, like, great posh kind of setup. I'm just writing on Twitter, finishing a tweet, opening another window to write the next one, and then I have to go back after 10 minutes and press send. It's just like, it's, it's because accidentally some information could leak out that was not meant to leak out that they want to stop. So, for example, when the um, the council to the inquiry are interviewing these former undercover cops, they're very direct. So, I don't want you to tell me this, and I don't want you to tell me that, and please don't mention this, and please don't mention that. It's important you don't use any names, but what I want to know is this. So, it's like very much laid out, the, the, the interviewing style is very much laid out of, you know, don't give away too much. And, yeah, there's a culture within the, those being interviewed that they don't want. This, it feels very wrong them giving you. I mean, do do you get that on text as well? The bit where they say, "Don't say, don't talk about this." Does that come up on the text? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, by going down to the viewing room, I get to see the whole thing over video. Oh yes, um, okay, sorry. Screen. But then yeah. that doesn't come on the text, though, does it? They don't talk about. This yes, that, that comes on the text. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So you, you get the full um, the, the full transcript. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, but it, it's. It, I think you you get a different sense of it though in person about actually what is kind of how just how kind of clear it is like that. Is there a criminal element involved in the whole spy cops thing? Like, is there any, any criminal charges being brought forward against uh, any of the cops that infiltrated his groups? No, none at all. So there's um, the civil cases that were brought that I was, for example, the one that I I was part of bringing. We brought against uh, South Wales Police, the Metropolitan Police, uh, the National Association of Police Officers. We never brought uh, anything against individuals as such. The Department of Public Prosecutions decided there was insufficient evidence for to, to bring criminal charges. You may remember the guy who was in charge of it at the time was a bloke called Keir Starmer, currently leader of the Labour Party. Then the other thing that there was another case that that kind of really stuck out was that that there was a spy cop. The spy cops were involved in kind of um, like surveillance on uh, Stephen Lawrence's family. Yeah, um, yeah. So he was yeah, killed yeah. in 1983. Yeah. Actually, I, I was only whatever eight at the time, but I, I remember I remember that right. um, time very well. But um, it's really oh old. man, it was like it was it was one of those sort of things, wasn't it? It was like it was bigger than a news story. It was like everywhere, right? Wasn't it? It was like it was huge. It was so huge. Kind of weird how it was so huge, but like I, I remember it. When I was thirteen. And I remember it really well. You know. Yeah, it's just mad to think why even there would be a need to do that. Like to to be kind of um, like spying on his family. Like, and he was just a young lad who got killed in a racial, a racially motivated so, attack. Yeah, so I mean that was a fairly common thing: the infiltration of family justice campaigns. Um, I mean, what's really interesting is, is the cops started like, infiltrating um, from the get-go. It, like, it, unlike other, um, you know, like you, you can you can start a um, from the police point of view, right? So, you know, justice campaigns for somebody who's died are problematic because public order things to do with it. But unlike, say, a, a campaign group springing up, 
um, you've immediately got a direct line as the police into that organisation. You've got a family liaison officer who is there talking to the um, to the family about the death. So from the very beginning, you've got intelligence on everybody. So sending an info, like an undercover officer in to infiltrate that, they've got loads of information they've gained from the family liaison officer. So, I mean, if you if you just put the morality on the shelf for a bit, because obviously that's what they did the entire time, but like you, from a, a, a deployment point of view, it was a very easy, not easy, but like, uh, uh, there was a lot to work with there. They could, you know, and like, they could infiltrate those groups, not with ease, but with, with a much greater understanding of them than, than other situations they're in. Because the family liaison office will be welcomed into the home and told everything by the family. You know what I mean? They would, they would, level of trust, they would often be very high, you know. Especially so, is the kind of warped rationale behind that being like, okay, this young fellow's being killed in a racially motivated attack. Let's infiltrate his family and the support group that they have around him just in case they decide to go and protest down in Downing Street or something like that? Is that is that the rationale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, they inevitably will protest outside the police station. Generally, the protest outside the police station is happening like that same day, you know. So, well, there, there will be public order, even if the family. So, one of the things that, um, so for example, um, Mahmoud um, uh, Hassan uh, was murdered in Cardiff only last week. Um, the the police managed to convince the family there was protests outside the police station in Cardiff every day, like from the day after uh, he died. Um, he, was, he was taken into custody, kept overnight, released in the morning, died a few hours later. He was injured. Um, and there were, there were, you know, protests every day getting bigger each day. The, the family appealed for the protests to stop, completely under pressure from the police. You know, I mean, generally, like, the police will use other, whatever influence they can to, like, shut down public order situations. So if they can do that by advising the family that it's not good for them to, to do that, then they'll do that. If that doesn't work, so for example, with the Jim Lawrence thing, they were unable to convince the family to tell people not to protest and not to be annoyed about it. Um, so they had to just step it up. And they, I mean, they always, I mean, they, they knew full well as an injustice was taking place. So if there's going to be an injustice and there's a danger that people will stand up for themselves, then you're going to have to shut them down. So. You know, like normally at this stage of the podcast, I'm like thinking, okay what's a nice positive way to finish up? And uh, like, <laughs> this has been a really lovely chat, but like the, that's not going to happen now because like there, there is no lovely positive way no. to finish this chat because this is just a thing that exists and it's something that's going to be coming out for probably a long time to come still. Yeah, and there's still lots of stories yet to be told, man. Um, like, you know, like with the, the first stage of the, the inquiry, phase one, you know, it was only like a couple of weeks. We had like seven days of evidence, but you know, every, every day of that evidence was full of like dozens of stories of things. Of, basically, what I think of as Britain's secret history, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, a lot of the things they were distracting were fairly minor. Yeah? And you go, like, you know, why, why did they put so much effort into stopping these various groups? But some of the things that they put a lot of effort into stopping were really major as well, right? You know, I mean, like, for all the kind of, you know, save the tadpole campaigns that they, and the miners shut down. There was things like the miners' strike, and there was, you know, like, well, several miners' strikes actually d- during um, the existence of the demonstration squad. There were there were large forces, there were large, you know, kind of changes in Britain that happened that undercover policing had a key role in in maintaining. You know, but, and I think there is a positive, right? You should never lose sight of this positive. Is that they 
the reason that they came after the movements that they came after is from fear, right? Fear that we could actually will change things, right? Fear that like we've got like the the ability to actually have an impact. And it's very easy that you don't, but it's kind of a sign that you kind of do. They need to do all these things. They need because it's like I say, it's not just in the common place, it's all the overt stuff as well, it's all the other covert stuff. You get so much stacked against you if you ever try and go out there and change society. Um and like the fact that they try and stop you is a sign that you can you're on the right track. And also the fact that we found out about it. Like you know, this stuff's been going on since the late sixties. We've only known about this for the last ten years. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's not um it's not like we it's a great like benefit to know to know that we know where we are with it, right? And sorry, you you mentioned a point there that maybe is really worth highlighting that thing about the, the bigger groups and the things that they that the the cops and stuff are working to stop and to trying to stymie the efforts of uh, large scale movements like the min- the minor strikes and stuff like that. There, so on the face of it, what we're looking at there is the police form the police force, which is supposed to be a political protecting the interests <laughs> of private industry, which is uh, probably a whole other podcast that that we that we can do. But it's really important to, to bring that in, like like as you did and. Um, add that into the list of things that were so wrong about this on top of all of the psychological manipulation and um, infiltrate, personal infiltration and stuff like that. So what is a good way for people to, um, I think I know the answer to this already, but what's a good way to the pe- for people to keep track of what's happening in the, in the inquiry? I mean, like, okay, I mean like, follow me on Twitter, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, you, if you want, like, I, I mean, it's all I fucking talk about on there. I won't bore you with like, I mean, I might occasionally, if, if if Newport Rugby is doing well, I might mention it. But uh, most part, uh, it's about the police. Thing. Yeah, Tom B. Fowler on, on Twitter. But uh, generally, so there's I, I run a website, spycops.info, um, which is nice, easy. If you look up spycops as a hashtag anywhere, there's new information coming out all the time. Try and collate it on spycops.info. There's a number of campaign groups like Police Spies Out of Lives. Their website is that.org.uk. There's the campaign, of, I shit you not. The campaign opposing police surveillance or longformout.org. That's not, I mean, like spycops.info. You'll remember that one. Yeah, spycops. Just look up spycops, you'll find it. Sweet. Um, Tom, thanks a million for your time today and for the chats. Hey, man, it's been fun. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne O'Carolan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon, and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters, where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from. Every single bit of support that we get here at the Rebel Matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road. Anyway, that's all for me this week. So, Gajian Kedarella, Akarja, Slan Gafoil, August Kenny Fiore. <laughs>